This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to revisit um, the terrible uh, Russian invasion and war in Ukraine. We're going to revisit the events of the last uh, three plus weeks, and we're going to revisit those events with uh, one of the foremost experts of these issues, someone who we've talked to many times before, someone who in his uh, prior discussion with us just about three weeks ago really gave us a foundation uh, for understanding this terrible moment uh, that we're in. This is, of course, uh, Professor Michael Kimmage. Michael is a professor of history at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and chair of the Advisory Council of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Michael, in addition to his many academic achievements, also has a great deal of policy experience from 2014 to 2017. He was the... um, member of the policy planning staff for the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, the member who had the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. So Michael was deeply involved in these issues from the time of the Russian invasion of Crimea through uh, the beginning of the Trump administration. Michael has published widely on the history of the region and the history of American policymaking, as well as social life and culture related to these issues. Among his many books um, is The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and the Lessons of Anti-Communism, and most recently, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Michael has published a number of important articles recently in Foreign Affairs, as well as other locations on the current conflict. He's been interviewed widely by National Public Radio and elsewhere. Uh, We're just fortunate, Michael, that you're willing to spend a little time with us and with our listeners. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. Always a joy to be with you both. Before we turn to our discussion with Michael, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri's poem. What is the title of your poem today? For Mariupol. Okay, so this is for the city under siege in southern Ukraine, yes. Okay, let's hear it. I think you were standing next to me at a carnival, except it was a funeral, and everyone was laughing except us. Everyone was laughing except us. I think you were standing next to me in the field across the river, looking into the city as they marched in. In the clip from the security camera in the elevator, they are jostled together, pulled up the floors with their guns. It wasn't raining, but you and I could feel the dew gather in our socks. The sky was gray until it wasn't, and you bent over, wheezing in the dust, and I held your hand as you opened your mouth and let the air out. I think you were standing next to me in a theater, except it was a bomb shelter, and everyone was crying except us. Everyone was crying except us. I think you were standing next to me in the field across the river, watching the apartment buildings explode like bells chiming out the hour. There are 12 now, going off and up into the sky. It must be midday. 
I think you were standing next to me in the theater, except it was a bomb shelter, and we had written children in big white letters. We had written children in big white letters, and still they waited somewhere above the clouds with their timpani and their clarinet to blow us all the way up to eternity. And later, much later, I think you were standing next to me at a funeral, except it was a grand parade, and everyone was laughing, even us. Everyone was laughing, even us. It's very moving, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the sort of absurdity of the violence that's unfolding on the streets of cities like Mariupol and many others, unfortunately, across Ukraine. Uh, the sort of indiscriminate violence and horror that's inflicted on civilian populations uh, that, that really exemplifies uh, how terrible this war and war in general is. I think that's a, the, the necessary place to start. Uh, Michael, I, I think this is uh, almost an unanswerable question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How should we, sitting in the United States or sitting in Western Europe, how, how should we understand what's happening in Ukraine uh, from the perspective of Ukrainians. I, I know news reporters or journalists of all kinds are trying to give us that sense, but, but I, I feel quite distant from what's happening there. How, how, can, how can we bridge that distance? How can we understand what's happening? Well, uh, I think we can begin in terms of understanding this uh, experience by emphasizing how unexpected it has been. Of course, uh, this is a conflict that dates back to 2014, if not to earlier periods of tension and conflict between Ukraine and Russia. So the very fact of conflict is not novel and, the, and it's not uh, in and of itself surprising. Uh, but the war began on the 24th of February uh, with a government uh, that's now duly and rightly celebrated for its courage, bravery and leadership, but with a government that was saying that the war was not going to happen. Uh, and I think like any of us, all of us in some ways, uh, it's very difficult to imagine the cataclysmic. Uh, and it's very difficult to imagine it coming uh, abruptly into your life. But that's precisely what happened to Ukrainians very early in the morning of the 24th uh, of February. So without preparation, without the psychological preparation that does come in the case of some wars, this war has descended upon Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, I think there are two further things about it that are uh, shocking for Ukrainians. You know, Ukraine is a, a very large country, both population-wise and territorially, and the war is concentrated more in the south, the east, and the north uh, than it is in the center of the country or in the west, but it is a war that touches all of Ukraine. So unlike the conflict in 2014, uh, which was devastating, resulted in the death, I believe, of some 14,000 Ukrainian citizens, that was still, by comparison, a localized conflict. This is uh, something that's happening on the territory of the entire country, and you've had missile strikes in, uh, in Lviv and other western Ukrainian cities. And of course, uh, as Zachary has eloquently uh, mentioned, you have the uh, horrific siege in, in Mariupol and, uh, and you know, substantial violence across much of the country. So there's the scale of it that is a shock to Ukrainians, uh, I have no doubt. Uh, and then the third and final point I would make on this account to try to understand, um, as you admirably wish to do, Jeremy, the psychology, the feeling of what it is to go through this war, uh, is uh, the brutality that's being directed toward civilians. Uh, Zachary, you put that in your poem 
very, uh, very appropriately. Uh, this is not a war that knows any boundary or border between civilian and military uh, targets. You had the strike on a shopping mall in Kiev <clears throat> yeah, either yesterday or uh, or today. Uh, you had, as, as Zachary notes, the bombing of the uh, of the theater uh, in in Mariupol and countless other uh, atrocities and humanitarian uh, disasters that have defect, directly affected the lives uh, of uh, Ukrainians uh, in, in 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 every respect. And you know the final point that we could make, and I know that everybody is aware of this, but is the number I believe is between eight and ten million now of displaced peoples, internally displaced people, uh, and of refugees, and that's of course a suffering. Uh, that's a consequence of this war uh, that is uh, being felt very uh, acutely across the country and, and at the moment throughout Europe. I think one of the difficult things to understand is the, the seeming paradox between the, the profound uh, personal suffering of Ukrainians that, that we're seeing, and Zachary referred to this as well, the, the, the bombing of facilities that have children in them, for example, uh, and at the same time, what seems like the incredibly stout, courageous resistance of Ukrainians. So they're suffering and resisting at the same time. And, and it seems to me it's our, our mind wants us to go in one direction or the other in understanding this. How, how do you understand the connection between those two, Michael? Well, I think that we might want to begin here with the Russian war aims. Uh, and they began, as we discussed in an earlier uh, you know, version of this uh, of this program, they began with a very unrealistic assumption that in short order, through lightning strikes and through intimidation, uh, that the government could be toppled in Ukraine uh, and that Putin and the Kremlin would be able to install uh, a puppet partition the country or perhaps redesign the whole thing politically uh, with a quick military invasion. Uh, that was a, a foolish military plan uh, and it's been shown as such on the uh, on the battlefield, but of course, Putin being Putin, he hasn't given up, uh, and he hasn't recalibrated and backtracked uh, in a fundamental way. He's still trying to achieve his political aim, aims through military means uh, in Ukraine, but now his goal, uh, in the agony of the Russian war effort, is to break the back of the Ukrainian people. And so the strikes on civilians, uh, we might want to question the word indiscriminate, uh, they correspond to a kind of political and military logic. They are meant to instill fear. Uh, they are meant to instill despair. Uh, they are meant to get Ukrainians in, 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 in a kind of local regional sense to surrender in the city of Mariupol and elsewhere. And of course, they're meant to get uh, the government uh, to yield, uh, whatever that might mean uh, in the eyes of Vladimir Putin. So the resistance of Ukrainians comes, I think, from multiple sources. But first and foremost, it is an effort to respond uh, to that policy, to that strategy uh, of getting a country to, to submit very simply by not submitting. Uh, and it's as much a psychological message to Russia uh, as the intimidation is a psychological message uh, to Ukraine. So that's one very important aspect. Uh, the other is that when you see those parts of Ukraine that so far have been occupied by Russian forces, uh, it is clear, it is apparent that those people living under the occupation uh, have absolutely no desire to live under occupation and will resist. So even after the battles in a local sense have been fought and won by the Russian military, they will resist the political outcome 
uh, of occupation. So there's a desire, of course, to see the war won uh, or you know, sort of managed uh, on the Ukrainian side. And for that, resilience and fighting back uh, and resistance is crucial. And then there is the appalling political prospect of living uh, as a kind of Russian colony uh, under Russian dominion. Uh, and that's not a fiction at the moment or a, a possibility uh, or a potentiality for some Ukrainians. That's a reality. Uh, and so there too, resistance has its own uh, special significance. So it's between war and politics, this question of resistance in Ukraine, uh, and it's uh, of the essence for uh, the survival of their nation. So in part inspired by the Ukrainian resistance, we've seen in many ways, at least an incredibly, an incredible symbolic show of solidarity from many Western countries. I mean, if you go around any major city in the United States, you'll see countless Ukrainian flags. To what extent has the support of the West uh, been material in this conflict and and actually made a difference uh, for the Ukrainians? Well, there is a time and a place to be critical of Western policy, and it's a discussion that we could have. Um, we could have it this evening, or we could set aside another time to do it and go back to 2014 and look at the mistakes that were made, and, and, there, and there were many. Uh, and there are ways in which the West did the wrong thing, and there are the ways in which the West did at times too much, and there are many ways in which the West did uh, too little. That is necessary. Um, you know, there's, this is not a moment for self-congratulation. When you see a war of this kind, uh, there should be introspection and self-criticism on the part of the U.S. Uh, and of the West. How did we get to this point? How did we get here? That's a, that's a necessary question uh, to ask. But that being as important as it is, uh, I think it's necessary at the moment to underscore the successes uh, of Western policy over the last couple of weeks, for sure, uh, but also going back uh, over the last couple of months. And so, um, you know, I would really list uh, three uh, three things here. We have uh, diplomacy, we have intelligence, and we have a military dimension to Western policy. And it is keeping, I think, Ukraine alive uh, for the time being and also for the foreseeable future. So one substantial success was to align a large group of nations into a kind of ad hoc coalition that is first and foremost transatlantic. These are the countries with the greatest equities in Ukraine, uh, but it's not just transatlantic. It includes South Korea, it includes Australia, it includes Japan, includes Singapore, uh, and there are a number of other countries that are committed to sanctions uh, and to working uh, for the sake of Ukraine, uh, for its uh, security and for its future prospects. And I have no doubt when the war is over, uh, that these will be the countries that will be first in line to provide financial assistance and to begin the reconstruction uh, of the country. So that foundation has been set. I think American leadership has played a role, but there's just a lot of will on the part of these countries to do something and to work together diplomatically. That really matters. On the other hand, you know, not on the other hand, but uh, in addition, uh, the intelligence, the way in which the Biden administration has used intelligence uh, has in the public domain consistently pulled the rug out from the Russian narrative uh, and prevented Putin from dominating the information space, as he has in previous periods, uh, to very dramatic effect. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I think covertly, this is not something I have any knowledge of, but I think covertly there's a very helpful flow of information going from the U.S., probably mapping and uh, targeting and such, that's going from the U.S. to Ukraine. Uh, and so they have on their side uh, the intelligence capacities of uh, a very considerable 
uh, superpower, and I think that matters greatly in the war effort. And then finally, you know, probably most importantly, in terms of a more than symbolic so show of support for Ukraine, you have all of the military assistance, uh, and that ranges from Turkish drones to, you know, to Stinger missiles and and, and javelins, uh, and to increasingly sophisticated uh, air defense uh, systems that are being. Uh, brought uh, to the Ukrainian military, and of course, ammunition and money and equipment and other things as well that are necessary for a military uh, to function. So the heart and soul of the story is the force uh, and the energy of the Ukrainian military, uh, but the backing that is being given is crucial, not just to morale, but to its very functioning, uh, and I think is showing real results on the battlefield. So the West is doing quite a bit, uh, and that's a story that needs to be told uh, and uh, understood as a as a key element of the conflict, and, and just building on those really insightful comments, uh, Michael, how, how should we understand the day to day? Then, I mean, one of the other complications looking at the maps every morning on the on the on the news and then following them on countless sites is things are not moving very much at all, um, and it seems like every day is more of the same. But what does that mean? Uh, how do we understand what's happening day to day as as military history, as military affairs? Well, let's start uh, on the uh, on the Russian side, uh, and uh, you know I think it's it's clear that in the north around Kiev, uh, and also in the east, uh, so this would be around the city of Kharkiv, uh, in the east that the the Russians have stalled, and that uh, the territory that they threatened to conquer and to conquer rapidly at the very outset of the war. And I think everybody, it wasn't just uh, the hubristic uh, analysts in the Kremlin, but I think everybody had this fear or this, this, this uh, scenario in mind uh, that at the beginning of the war, uh, the Russians could surround Kiev. Uh, they could take enormous amounts of uh, territory. They could sort of move past or surround the cities uh, and in, in that manner, cut them off uh, or take them. And that simply uh, has not happened. Uh, and part of this is a story of incompetence, bad logistics, low morale, uh, foolish military planning uh, on the Russian side. Uh, and part of it is a strategy on the part of the Ukrainians that at the beginning phase of the war, they sort of fell back and took more defensive positions and that forced uh, Russian uh, you know, troops and, and, and material out into the open uh, where it was very vulnerable to, uh, to to Ukrainian attack. And so that that has really stalled the advance uh, of the Russians in the north uh, and in the east and makes the political goals of this conflict, as the Russians have defined them, really very remote. Uh, it's not a question of being able to partition the country or to control uh, the country as a whole at all for Russia. It is a very partial set of territorial gains uh, in those parts of the country that matter most uh, strategically to Russia. The South is a somewhat different story. Uh, and I think there, there are a couple of ominous notes, even if the news of the last couple of days hasn't demonstrated large Russian uh, advances. Uh, and, you know, there is, I think, a concern about a possible encirclement uh, of Ukrainian troops in the southeast of the country, uh, in, the, in the Donbass, where there's been very fierce fighting uh, back and forth between Ukrainians. Uh, and Russians, and of course, the siege of Mariupol uh, is uh, extremely brutal. Uh, but that's the one city that the Russians are closest to uh, to taking after the city of Kherson had been taken uh, about a week and a half or two weeks uh, ago. So the slowness in the north and the east. There's a bit more movement 
uh, in the South. I think what the Ukrainians have really achieved militarily, and this is absolutely fundamental and will be fundamental to the negotiations that are ongoing and are probably going to intensify uh, in the short term, what the Ukrainians have achieved is uh, a true capacity to delay uh, the advance of uh, of the Russian armies. They are buying time for their government. Uh, they're buying time for the defense of Kiev, for um, you know the positioning of troops and booby traps and all kinds of uh, things that are going to make it a very difficult city for uh, the Russians to take. Uh, and each day that the war passes for Russia, there's great expense. There's very considerable casualties uh, and deaths on the Russian. Uh, on the Russian side, and the politics—I uh, don't think Putin is anywhere near, you know, being toppled or being uh, even resisted that much on the Russian side. But each day that this war ticks on, uh, it becomes costlier and more difficult to sustain uh, for Russia. So, you know, Jeremy, you know very well the history of Vietnam and the question of time and how time played ultimately onto the, into the hands of the North Vietnamese. I wonder if there's not a similar dynamic at work uh, in the territory of Ukraine at the moment. Um, and you mentioned uh, the sort of potentiality, the possibility of a sort of homegrown resistance to Putin within Russia. How should we understand the role of the Russian people themselves uh, in this story? I mean, there are there are stories of of of, of probably not ordinary Russians, but, but prominent uh, anti-Putin Russians uh, moving abroad to avoid the sort of repression, the intensified repression at home. How, how should we understand that space? Yes, that's a very significant story. It's in the tens of thousands now of Russians who have left for Turkey or for uh, or for Europe or in some cases to uh, to Central Asia or to the South Caucasus. Uh, and, you know, this is very substantial brain drain. Uh, these are more educated, uh, more skilled Russians who have the ability to leave and don't like what they see at the moment uh, in, in Russia. And this is certainly a loss, uh, a loss for the country, I think. Putin's attitude may be good riddance to these people. It's really very possible, but for the country at large, it's certainly a very uh, it's a very negative development. There were protests at the very beginning of the war. I don't know if they've exactly petered out, or if uh, the repression has gotten to the uh, have gotten to the protesters. But uh, I haven't seen too much evidence of a protest movement in the last week uh, or ten days. There's a you know great complex dialogue going on on social media within Russia and outside of Russia where different views are being aired. I think we all saw the the newscast where a, a member of the first channel uh, enacted a very interesting uh, gesture of protest uh, about the mendacity and manipulativeness uh, of Russian media. And I think all of that is ongoing, but I wouldn't want to be too um, optimistic in the short term about the prospects of resistance uh, in Russia, what Putin has shown over the course of the uh, of the war, uh, still a little bit less than a month old, uh, this particular war is that he is very willing, perhaps even eager, uh, to enact very very stringent structures uh, of repression. Uh, and so you had the banning of, of Facebook today, for example, uh, and that's of a piece with a lot of uh, persecution of independent media uh, in Russia. I think it's really possible to say that there's not officially speaking, formally speaking, uh, in, independent media left in Russia. And then we've seen many cases of intimidation, legal intimidation, physical intimidation of people who are protesting, even to use the word war now uh, is sort of publicly 
uh, unacceptable. And I think that there is a climate of fear uh, that's developing, that uh, if you say the wrong thing, something bad uh, could happen to you. I don't know how much longer Putin can continue turning the screws uh, of repression, but if it becomes a question for Putin of turning Russia into North Korea or losing the war, uh, I have no doubt that he will try, he will attempt to turn Russia into into North Korea. Sounds very bleak. It feels very bleak. Um, but that feels to me like the tunnel that we're looking down at the moment. And so you don't see a way in which uh, Putin would retreat. You don't see that as a prospect. I think if, if we use the word retreat, no. Uh, I think he is, and uh, maybe I didn't make the point emphatically enough in the, in, in the military discussion that we were having a moment ago, I think he's really losing this war. And I think he's losing it on the one hand politically in an almost absolute sense. I just think that his political objectives are receding now beyond uh, the horizon. In fact, the very thing he was trying to, to, to prevent, a sort of Western-oriented unified Ukraine, is the very thing that he's creating by the war. So it's a mathematically counterproductive endeavor uh, on Putin's side. And I also think that he's losing uh, the war itself, not just the politics of the war, uh, but the war war, uh, and that's a loss that will take a long time to play out, uh, but will, I think, be uh, the almost inevitable result of the planning uh, and the kind of strategy that Putin developed uh, for the war. But I also don't think that he is going to retreat or allow that word to be applied uh, to whatever he does uh, in, in, in Ukraine. Um, he does have lots of military firepower that he can bring in, uh, to this conflict, you know, God forbid uh, he does it, but it's not unthinkable that he could use biological, chemical, uh, or nuclear weapons. And of course, the Russian Air Force is sizable, and there are lots of ways in which he could just continue applying uh, pressure. Uh, so the question is, when the continuing to apply pressure becomes uh, less uh, valuable, less uh, profitable for Putin uh, than uh, cutting his losses and trying to uh, come to some kind of uh, accommodation. Uh, there is a very intricate diplomatic dance going on now between Ukraine and Russia, between Zelensky uh, and Putin. And as I see it, trying to be as rational as possible <laughs> in a situation that feels pretty irrational, but as I see it, I think there are incentives on both sides to come to the table. Uh, and if Putin can emerge from this uh, with a win, uh, with what he can call a win, uh, he has a lot of reasons uh, to try to cut his losses militarily, politically, uh, and uh, and economically. And it will just be up to Zelensky, really, how much he's willing and able to uh, to compromise. But that's, I think, how it ends, not uh, in an explicit retreat, but in some accommodation that both sides can uh, accept. And I'm not convinced that this is impossible. It, it does seem that it's harder every day, though, Michael, right? I mean, it, it, as you say, the Ukrainians every day have time on their side. If they can hold back the Russians, they're able to, uh, in a sense, acquire more battlefield strength each day. Um, and it seems the source of Ukrainian strength is their unity and their commitment to resist Russia. So that, that would seem to make it nearly impossible for Zelensky to cede any territory to Putin, right? I suppose that's correct. But I think that, you know, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's of the essence to do something uh, that moves in that direction for, uh, for Zelensky. He's created a very, very powerful wartime spirit. He's maybe you could say he's created uh, 
uh, Ukraine uh, in in uh, in his contemporary uh, configuration, uh, and he's done so through valor, and that valor has been uh, has been replicated uh, on the battlefield. But the war is destroying the country, uh, and you know we've just now, I think, begun to think through some of the consequences of of, of the war on on Ukrainian agriculture, which matters for Ukraine, also matters for a lot of other countries that. Uh, consume, you know, grain that's grown uh, in uh, in Ukraine. The devastation of the Ukrainian cities, starting with Mariupol uh, and moving on to other uh, places, is really uh, is really horrific. Uh, and you know, there becomes a kind of human incentive on Zelensky's side to try to put an end to it. Uh, and he has to be aware. He has to know. All of us have to know that on the battlefield alone is not going to be where Ukraine triumphs. Uh, it's going to have to be some combination of the assistance that the West is providing, uh, the achievements that they've made militarily, and very deft uh, diplomacy. I agree with you, Jeremy. I don't see a formula for how it's done. I don't know how Zelensky manages the domestic politics if it comes to real concessions about Crimea uh, or the Donbass, but uh, I don't think it's a sustainable war for Ukraine over the course of two three years or two, three years of this kind of suffering is going to reduce the country to ashes and to, and to rubble. So he has to work within that timeline as best he can. It's, a, it's an impossible task, I know, uh, and try to see if there isn't a way of balancing the military imperatives of the situation with the diplomatic imperatives of some kind of sustainable peace. It's impossible, but it has to be possible. Right. No, I, I understand 100%. But what wor- worries me, um, and then we'll try to get more optimistic after this question, Michael, but what worries me is um, it, it would be a, a perfectly reasonable strategy. I don't know if it would be a successful one. It would be a reasonable strategy for Zelensky to try to, to instead of work towards concessions, to work toward actually trying to widen the conflict himself, to bring the United States and NATO forces in. Um, this was, of course, the strategy that the nationalists in Taiwan had for a time, right, to try to provoke a conflict with mainland China that the United States would get involved in. And, and, and as you know, one of the concerns the United States had in the 1960s was to actually restrain our own ally. Uh, this is a very different scenario. But uh, in, in a certain way, um, Zelensky has rallied the Ukrainians, uh, the people, to to, to resist Russian repression and the, the, the risk of any Russian repression through concessions might be greater in the eyes of Ukrainians than the risk of widening the war and bringing in NATO. I'm sure you're right uh, from, uh, from his point of view. Um, you know, Zelensky has made these sort of despairing statements recently about NATO, which I think uh, don't suggest he's naive on the question of NATO. I think he's trying to shame NATO and NATO members into uh, doing more. He's given all of these Churchillian and stirring speeches to various parliaments, including uh, U.S. Congress, where he's made a case, not for getting these countries into the war, but uh, made a case for, for doing as much as possible. And also, again, kind of shaming uh, his listeners. Uh, there's been a dust-up between Zelensky and the government of Israel in the last couple of days about uh, analogies Zelensky has made to the Holocaust, which, um, you know, uh, I think uh, the Israeli government hasn't uh, been willing uh, to endorse. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, of course, true. I mean, it's, in a way, it's been the Ukrainian desire since 2014 to have a real treaty ally on its side, to join NATO, to get those kinds of guarantees and to get those kinds of 
uh, of commitment. So I agree. I think that from his vantage point, that would be uh, a powerful solution to the problem of what to do next. Uh, and, you know, you had Poland floating the idea over the last 48 hours of a uh, sort of peacekeeping mission uh, to, to Ukraine that would have been uh, really Poland entering the war, Poland, a NATO member state. Uh, and that idea was shot down by the Biden administration. So I think that you're right about Zelensky trying to pull the U.S., to pull NATO as much as possible uh, onto the side of Ukraine and perhaps onto the battlefield itself. It does seem to me that Biden has been quite clear and explicit uh, about not wanting things to develop uh, in that direction. Uh, And you just have seen emphatic statement (laughs) after emphatic statement from President Biden about this not being a war for NATO and not being a war into which the United States uh, can enter. And I don't doubt Biden's sincerity on this point uh, for a moment. So I do worry about certain accidents, you know, perhaps if the Russians start bombing the convoys, the aid convoys, which uh, Lavrov was suggesting Russia was on the verge of doing, perhaps that would push this into being uh, a wider war. Uh, and one could also contemplate in the desperation of the Russian war effort that they might uh, engage in missile attacks on Poland or, or, or elsewhere. Uh, as a way of provoking this outcome themselves, I'm not sure how you know, prudent or intelligent or, or wise that would be on the on the on the Russian side to give Zelensky what he uh, what he may be hoping for. But I think the discipline is is there for the most part on the Western side not to go down that not to go down that road. But um, as the humanitarian toll mounts, uh, another scenario, Jeremy and Zachary, could be that uh, public opinion starts to shift and becomes more. Uh, in favor of direct military uh, engagement, but then it is up to the leaders of you know Germany and and, and Britain and France and the United States uh, to lay out very clearly what their intentions are uh, and what the strategic logic would be behind uh, a, a chosen uh, sort of endorsed uh, escalation of the conflict. And there again, I'm just sort of doubtful that it would go uh, in that uh, in that in that uh, direction. Right, right. And, and of course, the historical analogy for public opinion pushing uh, the United States or its uh, European allies into military, direct military intervention, the historical analogy would in some ways be the wars in Yugoslavia, right? And the ways in which over time pressure on Bill Clinton led the United States to the controversial bombing of Belgrade uh, during the war. Um, Absolutely. Um, what do you think the United States should do? Michael, what? How can we um, use our vast resources and now, in a sense, uh, renewed influence within the Western alliance? How can we use that to try to push towards some some ceasefire, some some end to this conflict of some kind? Well, first of all, I think that we should continue doing what we're doing. Uh, I think that in an era of social media where the images coming to us are so horrific uh, and so disturbing uh, that it creates certainly in me, and I know in many people around me, a desire to see this, to see an end put to all of this as quickly as possible, as absolutely uh, as possible. But, you know, as we know, as students of the, of the Cold War, uh, in a nuclear age, rapid solutions to conflicts and tensions among nuclear powers uh, are fundamentally undesirable. And so one thing that we have to cultivate in ourselves, you know, we, we, the public, <laughs> we, the, uh, we, the members of our democracies, what we, the one thing we have to cultivate in ourselves is patience. Uh, and we've set in motion very, very robust 
sanctions vis-a-vis Russia that will have a real effect, but it's not going to be overnight. We have, the, have to have the patience uh, to see that out. If it is a war of attrition and a matter of uh, Ukraine holding out against Russia, then there too, patience and time is going to be very uh, important. Uh, all of the diplomatic efforts are to the good. All of the military assistance to Ukraine uh, is to the good. Uh, all of the political speeches and the political support, the solidarity uh, is to the good. And let's have a certain confidence that having marshaled this very considerable array of forces uh, in favor of Ukraine, that it's going to really have an effect. Uh, and let's stick with it uh, and not become nervous and jumpy about trying to go uh, and look into these sort of short-term solutions to this terrible uh, and horrific problems. That's the first point I would make. The second point I would make, and I have full confidence that the Biden administration will do this, is that if it comes to the Ukraine making concessions and doing things that are difficult for Ukraine and making life a little bit easier for Russia than any of us would like at the moment, if that's the decision that they make, if Zelensky sort of comes to the table and says, we'll sell Crimea to Russia or we'll give them a piece of the Donbass or we'll agree not to join NATO, uh, in return for a ceasefire or for peace. If, if that's Zelensky's choice, and he seems to have the backing of his population, we should support him. We should give them really a lot of leeway when it comes to the diplomacy. And if they're not comfortable making those choices and want to stick out and maintain as much of their independence and sovereignty and autonomy as possible, we should support them there. So we should really read them, uh, read what they're up to diplomatically and politically, uh, and we should give them uh, a wide uh, a wide berth and 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 maintain that uh, and maintain that support and then very finally the sort of third point when it comes to the diplomacy I think it's clear who the major actors are in this diplomatic ad hoc coalition but let's see if there aren't through subtle processes of persuasion negotiation and diplomacy let's see if there aren't some interesting ways of widening this coalition I think that there may be opportunities with China uh, in this regard. I really don't think that China likes this war. It's not going to give the United States, you know, an extra inch when it comes to American leadership. Uh, but perhaps there are very, you know, sort of behind the scenes ways in which China could be nudged uh, over onto the side uh, of this uh, of this coalition. Uh, and that would be very meaningful indeed uh, if it were uh, to happen. So let's not foreclose the diplomacy and think that we have the team and everybody's going to stay on the team and it's only about this team. Let's see if we can maybe get a few more members uh, of the international community uh, onto this team uh, and and let that drive the process as well. So mostly I think we should just stay the course, uh, but be diplomatically open-minded uh, and see if there aren't new avenues for diplomatic creativity. What about a, a sort of Kissingerian shuttle diplomacy, um, sending Secretary of State Blinken or some other envoy to meet with Putin and then meet with uh, Zelensky uh, and try to work out some deal on the model, of, of course, of what Kissinger did after the 1973 war in the Middle East? I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, it sounds like an interesting idea to me. I, 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 I don't see too many... Uh, indications that that's that that's what Russia wants in this situation. So at the very beginning, there were feelers put out by Israel. Uh, Turkey has sort of offered to play this role. I know China has offered to play the role uh, of the uh, of the mediator. But ideally, it would be a country, or you know, sort of practically speaking, it would probably be a country that has good relations with Ukraine, uh, which is something that you can say for Turkey and Israel. Uh, in a country that has workable relations 
with uh, with Russia. And the hard thing for the U.S., although in some ways what you're suggesting, Jeremy, would be just right, because without the U.S., none of it is really going to work for Russia because they think of the U.S. as you know the prime mover of of, of politics on the other side of the barricades. Uh, but um, you know, I just I just wonder if the U.S. Uh, can manage it because the U.S. is so much on the side of Ukraine uh, in this uh, in this conflict. So maybe better to outsource uh, in this case the diplomacy to another power. We could sort of go back in time and think of uh, uh, of Teddy Roosevelt in 1905 uh, trying to get out of the summer heat from Washington D.C. and taking things up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, right, uh, and helping to resolve the or or really resolving the the military conflict between Japan uh, and Russia. And that was you know the United States a kind of parvenu. Uh, power on the periphery of the international system that could play the role of mediator. And probably it's a country like that uh, that could accomplish more than the U.S. could at the moment diplomatically. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And and the Russo-Japanese war is such a good analogy because that was also a, a long, very deadly, brutal conflict that, that really ended in a stalemate, as in fact most wars do, right, Michael? I mean, that's part of the issue here, right? We have this image of one side attaining victory, but most wars end um, with the messiness, the stalemate, the the chaos that that Karl von Clausewitz and others describe. Yes, I think that this one is almost destined to end uh, in a stalemate. Maybe we could have entertained the thought in the first week of the war that Russia would achieve an outright victory. That looks very remote to me, and and Ukraine is not going to be able to expel the Russian military from its territory, or at least not all of the Russian military from its territory. So a stalemate is, 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 is almost inevitable. We could also add, just to go back to your previous question, we could also add Finland to the list as a, as a country that might be able to go in between Ukraine and Russia. Sure, sure. Zachary, um, I know you've been following these events closely, as have many of your peers. Uh, I know that it's been emotional for you also, as it has been for many of your peers. Um, Listening to Michael's descriptions of what's happening, are, are, are you drawn to um, some hope here? Do you think this is a topic where uh, your generation can maybe draw some lessons and, and, and improve? Or are we sort of going back in the sense of back to the, the, the worst of the past here? I think, unfortunately, that we probably are going back to some of the worst of the past. I think it's it's too easy um to see this um, conflict within the sort of old framework of, of, of how we as Americans view the world, whether it's through the lens of World War II or the Cold War or, or, or something entirely different. And I think part of the problem is that we, we don't understand um, the, the new tools that are available to us, the new tools that, that our government, that other governments uh, allied with our government are using to, to are leveraging to help the Ukrainians in this conflict. And I think we also have, as a country, a very poor understanding of the power of diplomacy. And I hope that maybe uh, the, the end of this conflict, the peaceful end of this conflict, could uh, be a symbol of, of the power of diplomacy and, and the, the power of, 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 of talking uh, instead of fighting. You, you have found an optimistic silver lining there. I, I like that. M- Michael, uh, last question to you. Do, you. do you share that hope that there's some, some belated but positive learning that's occurring through this terrible ordeal? I think we're, we're far from that uh, at the moment. Uh, we've been reminded, uh, if it was possible to forget, uh, of the horrors of war, uh, and there is 
there is value in that, uh, I suppose, although it's, 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 it's hard to feel that value uh, in the uh, in the immediate sense, uh, we are exactly as Zachary says, struggling to come to grips to understand with the nature of the nature of our political moment. Uh, whether the key thing in this crisis, this is what historians will have much better insight into, fifty years and a hundred years from now. Whether the key thing is social media in this crisis, perhaps it will galvanize a kind of global public opinion in a way that will result in Russia's uh, defeat. Um, you know, perhaps the key element of the crisis is going to be drone warfare uh, in ways that just redesign and remake uh, the battlefield in unpredictable ways. I don't know if that would benefit Russia or Ukraine more in this conflict, but that seems to me another uh, possibility. And I think we have a new phase of the conflict that's upon us. The White House made the announcement today that there should be real concern in this country about cyber uh, attacks on critical infrastructure in the United States. And so that, of course, would uh, make us not bystanders in the way that we often feel at the moment, but might make us in very unpleasant ways uh, participants uh, in this new kind of war. If that would be the case, uh, a Russian cyber attack on the United States, uh, we would be uh, in a new world. There have been cyber attacks before, but not directly between nuclear uh, powers. So perhaps that will be the key uh, component. It's unpredictable, but let's end on a note of optimism because that's I think always worth uh, always worth doing uh, and if there are new circumstances to this war which does certainly seem to be the case technologically militarily uh, and to a degree politically then there should be a new kind of diplomacy uh, and we can learn the lessons of the past uh, of how much uh, a diplomacy can achieve and in what manner but perhaps a new style of diplomacy may emerge from this a new kind of multilateralism uh, that may be there uh, when the when the dust settles and the conflict starts to get uh, resolved, or new ways of aligning uh, strategic objectives with diplomatic uh, engagement. Uh, you know, I'm sure the old formulas of the kind that you explored in your edited volume, uh, Jeremy, on 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 how diplomacy succeeds. I think those old formulas are going to all apply, but my guess is that the style may have to be. Uh, may have to be new. So new wars always bring new realities, and with the new reality of this war may come a new kind of diplomacy. And and to those who are able to get there, I just wish them Godspeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it's such a good note to close on because one of the inspiring parts of this conflict is certainly seeing, and you, you've been eloquent about this, Michael, uh, how uh, Zelensky and others have rallied people to uh, a very difficult fight and, and rallied people at home and abroad, rallied members of Congress uh, who would have imagined, you know, both parties would sit together and watch on a movie screen or what looked like a movie screen, the president of Russia, uh, actually the president of Ukraine, uh, <laughs> rallying, them, <laughs> rallying them to, uh, to a cause. So, so there is a, a publicness to this diplomacy that, that is mediated by technology in new ways and, and appealing to, people in new ways. And I think that's that's certainly something uh, that all of us can learn from and, and find some hope from, right? Technology can be a source of demagoguery, but also a, a source of uh, democratic inspiration, perhaps. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's something so moving about the contrast between Zelensky and Putin at the moment, not just, you know, Putin the aggressor and Zelensky the defender of his country. But what's moving to me about it is that Putin has these immense resources at his disposal. You know, FSB, G7, 
GRU, SVR, you know, sort of the great master manipulator of global politics uh, who, you know, turned a screwdriver and, and uh, reached into American politics in 2016, the magician who can do anything, uh, you know, the KGB operative uh, extraordinaire, all of that. That's an old narrative about Putin. And look, he's there helpless, unable to change minds, unable to tell the story uh, at a great remove from his own population uh, and isolated, you know, like a king in his cold marble palace. Uh, and there's Zelensky in his bunker with a cell phone uh, telling a story that uh, is, you know, moving the minds and the hearts of millions upon millions of, of, of people. That's quite remarkable. Uh, and it has speaks to the contrast between a story that's untrue and a story that's true uh, and speaks to the contrast between thuggery and courage. But uh, it's just remarkable to see in real time and to see with one's own eyes. But you're absolutely right, Germany. Jeremy, without the technology there, uh, that story wouldn't be coming to us. Absolutely. It's a new kind of populist idealism as a contrast to the sort of populist dystopia that we were talking about just a few weeks ago. Completely. Michael, thank you. Uh, as always, you have uh, shared valuable insights with us. You've given us a real framework for understanding what's happening. And most of all, you've you've helped to make sense of some of the complexity uh, without, uh, without overriding the, the true complexity of it. And you've shared uh, the dark and the light with us. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Zachary and Jeremy, thank you again for the invitation. Zachary, thank you for your, uh, your beautiful and heartfelt uh, poem. And I very much look forward to our next conversation. And we'll hope that uh, uh, that uh, long-suffering Ukraine is in a is in a better place the next time we speak. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation when we reach some denouement, some happy denouement, we hope. And you can say you predicted it all along. Right? <laughs> Even if you didn't, it's okay. Just say you predicted it all along. Right? <laughs> Zachary, thank you for your poem. Uh, as, as Michael said, you really uh, brought part of the war home to us with your poetry today. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.